Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly. Which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while a lot of the fun facts we stumble across make it into our articles, there are lots of other weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Eleanor Cummins. And I'm Mary Beth Griggs. So on The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, we start by each offering up a little tease of some kind of fact or story that we picked up in the course of our writing, editing, reporting, etc., And we decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then, once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene to vote on what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Mary Beth, why don't you start with your tease? Okay. I am going to be talking this week about tiny little robots that hop around in space. Whoa. Very cool. I um, wanted to talk about the dark economic history behind the Disney film Frozen. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Did not see that coming. (laughs) All right. I am going to talk about animals on drugs. That's always a good one. All sorts of drugs. Oh, my gosh. What should we talk about first? Frozen. Yeah, I think (laughs) that, like, I don't know what Eleanor's fact is going to be, but the tease is, is a great one. So... Europe. All right. I was reading recently a Wikipedia entry that's just a bunch of events that happened in New York City, and um, one was just called the Frozen Water Trade. And, <laughs> and I was obviously what a day that was. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was not well time stamped, but it led me down a, a really wondrous um, rabbit hole. So in the uh, 19th century um, and into the 20th century as well. It was really hard to get your hands on ice. And Mm -hmm. this is hard to believe, given that we could all at any moment get our hands on some ice (laughs) for zero to few dollars. Right. But at the time, like most parts of the world did not have naturally occurring ice, were not able to store foods, um, Mm -hmm. refrigerated meats or fruit. And they also just couldn't cool the heck down, um, which was a really big problem. 
So apparently at its peak, this industry was worth like $660 million um, in today's money. And that was like when it was still heavily mm-hmm. subsidized wow. by governments that were trying to like, you know, they were moving ice, um, you know, for the army. They were moving it for uh, patients in hospitals. So like the prices were artificially depressed and still it was this huge industry. And so I was talking about this um, with Sarah, uh, one of our uh, editors and a frequent Weirdest Thing contributor. She kind of poo-pooed my fact. But she was like, oh, yeah, everyone knows this. What did you think was going on at the start of Frozen? (laughs) And the answer was I hadn't thought much about the start of Frozen at all. But when you go back and look at it, it is like a bunch of, like, men in some, you know, maybe, like, northern European country just, like, sawing blocks of ice out of a lake. And that was how this industry functioned for, like, almost, like— 150, like 200 years. So basically the idea was that these places that had an abundance of ice um, would literally turn them into, you know, giant bricks. And then those could be stored and shipped around the world. And the guy who came up with this idea, his name um, was Frederick Tudor. So what were people doing before this idea? Like there were uh, a lot of like very... um, troublesome like al- kind of alchemical processes right like saltpeter was like um. a really bo- like big idea so that's like potassium nitrate um, and like you could use that to cool water down but then also people just would like literally like dunk their pajamas in water and then like hope that that cooled them off overnight which is like my personal nightmare that sounds <laughs> so uncomfortable so they were just like all of these sort of like hodgepodge ways of like trying to like simmer down and when Frederick Tudor um, like he he just got like like literally seems like an evangelical kind of zeal like he was like we have to like start shipping ice around the world and this was his big vision and he went broke he was like in debtors prisons like on and off throughout his uh his not so great career until he became the ice king and the ice king was a moniker bestowed upon him because he figured out a way to take blocks of ice from um the northeast of the united states like henry david thoreau like writes about ice being taken from like the ponds that he freed Frequented, and he figured out how you could insulate it with sawdust mm-hmm. and in big enough quantities ship it around the world. So he started shipping it to Calcutta um, on the far um, east side of India. And so it was a 14,000 mile journey. It took four months for the ice to get there. But at that time, the British who were colonizing India were just like totally overwhelmed by the heat. Like they were not mm-hmm. accustomed to it and they were not adapting well and they were very grumpy. And so they were willing to pay just like huge sums of money for this ice to be shipped like all over the world for them. Um, and so that is sort of how Frederick Tudor like made his name. And it's just very interesting to like think about what it must have felt like to finally get your hands on something that could cool you down. There was a really great article recently um, in Atlas Obscura that was like talking about what it was like when it arrived in India. And for the British, they had maybe had, you know, ice that was created through these other methods, right? Like the saltpeter method. Um, but just weren't really able to get their hands on it anymore. Or maybe they had their own blocks of ice from, uh, you know, that were stored from like a winter in England um, that they could then, you know, use in the summer. Um, but for the uh, people in India who had never like tried this before, it was a very shocking experience apparently. Um, so uh, British colonists were writing about how 
Um, and though little children still continue to seek and to suck it as though it were a sweetmeat, they no longer consider it as the novelty which, when first holding it in their nearly paralyzed fingers, they declared in amazement had burnt them. So that's like after a few years of this like industry. Um, so it was just like a, a kind of like magical thing that um, people wanted their money back when it melted too fast. <laughs> like <laughs> just like a lot of sort of yeah. uh, kinks in in this uh, you know like new economy um, that Tudor had created. Um, and another thing I thought was like so fascinating too was that before this man decided that he would single-handedly make um, ice a thing, like people did not really have like an appetite for it. Like mm -hmm. there is, he would go around to like bars and he would be like, look, like, let me just convince you to sell a chilled beverage and a not chilled beverage at the same price and just, like, let people actually decide without any market interference and, like, see what they pick. And everyone picked the chilled beverages, like, without a doubt. And and so this, this was, but this wasn't something that they'd considered before. Like, he talks about how when he was, you know, like, on the road trying to, um, you know, sell people on this, they would be really skeptical because he was, like, always, like, you know, hoarding, <laughs> like, chunks of ice to cool down his own drinks. Um, but then after, like, you know, after a sip or two like that very sort of like apocryphal idea they would they would be changed by by this like chilled <laughs> beverage and so that was uh yeah kind of what I had been thinking about this week um there are a lot of other cool ice facts like the idea yeah. that there were boom towns right like that were just mm -hmm. emerged to service this ice industry so like along the Kennebec River in Maine there were just like these like towns that would sort of like pop up overnight during the season because people like came in droves to you know sort of chop up the uh, ice on the river um, and then sell it around the world it like totally dominated this was the only way really to, to get ice it, it definitely outperformed like saltpeter or any of mm -hmm. these like older methods um, but then it just disappeared and now it sounds so hilarious um, <laughs> it's great yeah yeah, but it wasn't until like World War One that we actually had the sort of like refrigerating systems, which had long been sort of speculated about. Um, but it wasn't really until the World War One era that people were like, okay, we're going to start doing like artificial mm -hmm. refrigerants, um, and then we'll be able to have freezers, and then you just put water in the freezer, and like out comes your own ice. So amazing! People got too excited about it, basically, and that is why we are no longer like chopping up. Uh, lakes and sending them around the world we're just doing it in our own kitchens whoops wow yeah. all this is making me think of do you guys remember the laura ingles wilder book where the guy she marries almanzo right I never read this. Series. Oh my gosh. I know. Okay. I'm scared to so say. So there is an entire book about his life in like right. this northeastern area where they actually went out and harvested ice. Wow. And he gets very concerned because they use like one of those two handled saws and mm -hmm. he was worried that like someone was gonna have to go underneath the ice and like pull down on the saw in order Aww. to like saw through it. But Kids they, are stupid. It's adorable. But they ended up cutting these like huge blocks of, of ice and storing it just like you said, in sawdust. Right. And there, so there was like this whole infrastructure, like you could have built a map just around ice houses yeah. that like popped up all over the world because the idea is that like they were able with a little bit of insulation like sawdust, they were able to 
to keep them in such high concentrations that the ice sort of like kept itself Self-cooled, from melting. Yeah. yeah, like almost like a like a glacier, but like artificially in an ice house. So you would stack them like eighty feet high, these blocks. Whoa. And then if you sort of drained off any of the melt that did occur, that would uh, you know kind of keep it more intact and and you could preserve it. Um, but yeah, so they were just like these huge facilities, and then they were you know trying to like move them between them and and, and sort of give people ice but what I think is wild about all of this is that even though it was a huge successful and like uh, really profitable um, industry 90% of ice they think was lost before it actually got to the consumer <laughs> so like this entire industry was just the 10% that they actually could preserve <laughs> like even the best methods of, of kind of keeping it cool did not um, d- I mean like that would be horrible can you imagine losing 90% of your product like there's no way you could get away with that like today but they were like this is a, this is good enough <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I guess when you compare it to to like saltpeter, it it makes a lot of sense why people were willing to put up with it because this process, I found you guys, I found this like extremely long article about what it was like in the Regency era um, to try to cool down. Oh my gosh! Um, and Please. it is this beautiful explanation of how saltpeter works. So basically, you would take like a wooden tub, and it should be sort of like. Um, wider at the top than at the bottom. Then you would put in the potassium nitrate um, on the outside of a sheet of like lead or zinc. And then he would just try to insulate that cooling mixture and slowly bring the water temperature down. Um, apparently five to seven pounds of saltpeter when pulverized um, could bring down the temperature of the water 25 to 30 degrees in 15 minutes. Um, which sounds pretty significant. Uh, it would stay that way only for two hours. Um, mm-hmm. But even then, that's not like frozen. That's not like ice, right? That's right. just like colder water. So I totally get why people were like, we, we're we just going to, yeah, we're going to take these frozen blocks. Also, isn't saltpeter like super bad for you if you eat it? Oh, yeah. You definitely don't want to put that uh, in your mouth. Um, but people uh, definitely did put it in guns. That was the <laughs> other thing that the, uh, that the sort of British Regency period was, they were like, saltpeter sort of occurs naturally in certain environments and so they would just like delicately like scrape it off the side of buildings where they could find it and like there was like it was essentially like a decades-long manhunt for any like a <laughs> bit of saltpeter they could get their hands on because it was just so versatile um, but yeah also bad for your kidneys the other thing uh that i thought was interesting was that there was this thing called like ice man's knees where you would just get like bloody like like no. and no. aching like arthritic knees from the process of like like cutting the ice out of the lakes lots of other injuries and sort of like uh, also job displacement mm-hmm. like in uh, British colonial India there was an entire like uh, you know sector of jobs that were just to like help manage the rich people's temperature um, and those <laughs> went away as as uh, ice became more and more accessible oh. wow wow we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll be back with more facts me, more, I am a robot, listen to Last Week in Tech. Thanks for that introduction, robot. I'm Stan Horacek, one of the hosts of Last Week in Tech, a podcast from the popular science editors where we take a look back at the week's big technology stories, including everything from new products, social media, and even future tech, yes, like robots. You can listen on iTunes, Google Play Music, SoundCloud, wherever you get podcasts, or if you are a robot, just stick your antenna up in the air and tune into our frequency. Listen, or I will destroy all humans. (laughs) Thanks, robot. But please do it, because he's not joking. 
Okay, we're back. And I think we should hop into some space robot Whoa. territory. Hop, 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 hop. <laughs> I'm so delighted by this. It's very exciting. So we found out this week that Japan's uh, Hayabusa 2 mission actually managed to land. For the first time, we have managed to land human rovers on an asteroid. It's very exciting. So this uh, is a Japanese mission that has headed out to an asteroid called Rigyu, or Rigyu. I'm not going to pronounce that right. I'm sorry. Essentially, it's it's really thrilling because it's there, it's orbiting, and this is a really, really small planetary body. And mm-hmm. so you can't just have our normal rovers, which go through like the seven minutes of, of hell that go down to the <laughs> Mars surface and, you know, managed to roll around after that. Um, in this case, the gravity is so low that if you had a robot just like rolling along on the surface, it would actually just kind of float off into space. Whoa. <laughs> and so... Not just ideal. get traction and just yeah. swoop right up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's just like, this is not going to be so great. And so... Um, Japan had actually tried to do this before. They tried it with the first Hayabusa mission, which was uh, launched in 2003. It uh, landed on Itokawa in 2005 and actually did manage, like the main spacecraft managed to get a sample of the asteroid, which it returned to Earth in 2010. So this is all very, very exciting and thrilling. Um, But it was supposed to send down a little hopping rover. Unfortunately, that first time, um, it didn't make it there. The calculation, they they sent the command to launch the rover as the spacecraft was actually going up and away from the asteroid. It missed, it, it just, it missed Itokawa and, and went off into space. And there's this, what I found. <laughs> no. I, it's just, it's very sad to me. <laughs> but you can see, like, this is the asteroid um, and then that little tiny, tiny dot in the middle of this yellow no. circle. Oh, it's like Sandra Bullock I. in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very depressing. And so it just, yeah, it went off into space, ended up circling the sun. I'm sure it had a very happy, you know, it's cold. It's, it's anyways, it's out there. We, we don't need <laughs> to dwell on it. Um, but um, they decided to try again with this next mission. Uh, and so Minerva 2, um, which are these robots, um, it stands for, it is, of course, an acronym because space <laughs> missions have to have acronyms. Uh, yeah. It's Micro Nano, um, let's see, Experimental Robot Vehicle for the Asteroid. Mm. Minerva. Mm. Not what I would have guessed. Yeah. I love that for the asteroid in there. <laughs> for the asteroid. Uh, you have to get the A in they there somehow. Just have- <laughs> yeah. This time they launched two uh, different rovers and they're going to launch two more next year, which is very, very thrilling. So rover 1A and rover 1B actually made it down to the surface, which I found very thrilling because these are just these are tiny tiny little robots they're not that big they're just let's see it's it's like a Roomba it is it's like a Roomba and it's it's got it's a diameter of 18 centimeters a height of 7 centimeters and about 1.1 kilograms so that's about Two pounds. I think or that's so. literally Roomba size. Yeah, it's very small. Did they just send Roombas to space? <laughs> Not quite. They sent Roombas with thorns on them to space. 
great. So you can see in the little picture that they have. Oh, wow. It's like a tricked out Roomba. <laughs> it's a tricked out Roomba. <laughs> DJ Roomba. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is like some DJ Roomba stuff. And they've got these little thorns that are coming off of it. Are uh, And you can, there's a great artist illustration that we're going to put on our website um, for you guys to see too. But just picture for now a Roomba ringed with thorns <laughs> and you'll have an idea of what we're looking at crowned in thorns it is it is it's beautiful it spikes. is yeah. it spikes yeah spikes. it's like a little punk Roomba yeah <laughs> yeah we have a great image of this um, on our website, which is how I happened across it in the first place. I was because we were reporting on this first image that was sent back by one of the rovers. Um, and these little thorns actually measure temperature and they've got optical sensors. They're, they're very tricked out little, little robots. Um, but the way that they move around and this picture that, we, that was sent back to us was taken mid hop. <laughs> And I am just so excited about the idea of these robots hopping around. And so what (laughs) happens is they've got a motor inside that turns over and that sends it just flying through the air. (laughs) And it goes, it's, and you can really see that in the picture. There's like movement there. It looks like it is going. It's not going very fast, but it can travel like a surprisingly long distance. Like one of its hops can take it about 50 feet. Wow. Yeah. Which is wild. That's about the same as the record for an animal, which is a snow leopard going about 49 feet. Kangaroos are about 40. Humans. Losers. Yeah. Humans are very lame, and <laughs> we can only, the longest long jump was at 29 feet 4 inches. Whoa, I have to say that that is, I'm sorry, that is really beyond what I thought a human being could do. Yeah, Yeah. that is really impressive. But still, you got trumped by the DJ Roomba. DJ Roomba (laughs) for the win. Yeah, no, that was Mike Powell in 1991. And what was amazing about that particular long jump record was that, bless his heart, he um, he set it right after his teammate set the record for for, for 8.91 meters. And then he comes along with, 8.95 8.95 yeah and they never spoke again yeah that was that looked like it was kind of a painful moment but exciting this distance that it covers it takes because of the little gravity it's just kind of floating along so it floats along for 15 minutes before it lands back down <laughs> which is That's amazing it's fantastic I, I love that it hops because uh, when the feeling lander yes. uh, tried to to hop onto a comet yeah. Um, and failed. Uh, yeah. It, you know, it was because it like landed and kind of bounced. Yeah. And bounced too much and just ended up with its solar panels in the wrong place and it slowly died and we oh eventually found it. It was very sad. Yeah. Um, everybody did great work on Philae. It was not a failure. It was no. just that the robot did not actually do the thing. It did not do the thing. Which happens a lot. But. Yes. I love that this robot is supposed to just like bounce yeah. and flip all over. <laughs> yeah, and it does it autonomously. So this is it is wow. hopping on its own. It is deciding when it hops and it is it is just <laughs> it's a robot it, that knows its own mind. It knows its own mind and it's it's great. And yeah, and, and the hopping idea has actually been around for a while. The Russians tried it with Phobos 2 mm. back in 1989 where they were going to send 
uh, rover down to one of Mars's moons, uh, and unfortunately, they lost contact with the spacecraft before they had like the chance to actually send it down to the surface. But this is an idea that has been around for a while, and it's just it's so exciting to see it actually working. And I mean, it's just. For me, it's weird and wonderful to imagine these rovers just kind of like hopping around on an asteroid. And the fact that there's two of them now, uh, Rover 1A and Rover 1B, and there will be Rover 2A and Rover 2B (laughs) next year, um, which is is really exciting. It's like Jimmy Neutron meets 2001 A Space Odyssey. (laughs) I'm pumped about it. These bots are made for hopping. Oh. Oh! And that's just what they'll do. Nancy Sinatra is so proud of you right now. (laughs) Could you tell us about some of the science they're hoping to do on the asteroid? Uh, Or do they just love watching robots hop? Because that would also be a valid endeavor in my mind. Take my tax dollars. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, we'll take Japan's tax dollars in this case. But we'll get there. We're going to get there. There's some missions in the works. But yeah, I mean, this is something where we're going to find out a lot about asteroid surfaces because we don't know that much about what is going on on an asteroid. Um, We've got the sample from Hayabusa, but uh, the original, um, like the OG Hayabusa mission. But we're going to get some more um, data now and and that's that's really exciting because we still don't know a lot about what makes up these rocks in mm-hmm. the outer solar system what we have now is just the stuff that happens to hit us in the form of meteorites and that's not exactly a great sample size so if mm-hmm. we can go out and actually figure out what's out there that's pretty exciting for people that are studying the origins of the solar system mm-hmm. and also you know potentially space mining that sort of thing this is is kind of the idea is we want to know what these are made of where they came from and um, you know we're going to pick up a lot of data from not only this mission um, not only from these rovers but also from they're going to be doing some more sample return um, which will be be pretty exciting awesome very cool love those little robots we are going to take one more quick break and then we'll be back with one more quick fact at Outdoor Life Magazine we've never been easy on the gear we test which is precisely why you can trust the gear we make. Introducing Guide Life, performance products and apparel designed with the editors of Outdoor Life. Made for backpackers, campers, hunters, and anyone who enjoys the outdoors. And like any great adventure, this one starts at base camp. The collection includes tents, lanterns, duffels, sleeping bags and pads, and more. Available now on Amazon and olguidelife.com. Okay, we're back, and uh, now I'll get into my fact, which is about animals on drugs. So many drugs, all different sorts. A few days ago, I edited an article by our intern, Charlie Wood, about a new study wherein scientists dosed octopuses with ecstasy. Uh, Which, um, you know, I love octopuses. I'm not going to say I love ecstasy, but it's a really interesting (laughs) drug. It's fascinating. Um, so I was like, hell yeah, <laughs> great study. And looking into it more, uh, honestly, this is one of the most wholesome sounding animal studies I have ever delved into, full stop. We'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> uh, and we'll get to the least wholesome animal study I have ever <laughs> oh, found. No. Oh, no. Um, so 
why do this study at all? Because octopuses are super intelligent. They can recognize individual humans. They can solve all sorts of puzzles. But their brains are super different from our own. And our last common ancestor existed like 500 million years ago. So the question is, how does something with a brain more similar to a snail than a human's achieve that level of cognition? Which is not to say that people don't believe it can be so. Uh, you know, animal researchers now realize quite clearly that it can be so, but it's an intriguing question because we understand why the other great apes have similar cognition to our own because we are very close on the evolutionary tree. We can point to structures of their brain that work exactly the same as structures in our brain. So when you're looking at uh, something like an octopus that has uh, evolved completely differently and does not have any of those structures where you can say like, ah, yeah, that's where the smart stuff goes. (laughs) Um, You know, it, it kind of gives us an interesting way to figure out what the common denominators are, even when there are so few common denominators, which is a really interesting way to get at kind of the very earliest evolutionary origins of, you know, like higher level cognition. It also helps you know if you should invite octopi, octopuses to Coachella. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> very also useful. very important. Um, so one way to investigate that is to figure out whether drugs affect us in the same way because, you know, drugs influence very specific uh, pathways and receptors in our brain. So if uh, animals are having the same sort of behavioral effects, it, you know, kind of points out what neuroreceptors might be equally important for them. MDMA is known for making humans super social. MDMA is ecstasy, by the way, in case uh, you are not up with the lingo. (laughs) Also known as molly. Uh, People may refer to themselves as rolling. MDMA is known for making humans real cuddly and lovey-dovey. And octopuses are, on the whole, really socially isolated critters. We're starting to occasionally find individual species of octopus that, uh, you know, hang out with each other more but generally speaking most octopus like only get along while they're mating other than that they are the lone wolves of the sea wow and so researchers wondered would mdma turn them into more social creatures (sighs) first they had to do some dosage trial and error uh, because initially the tripping octopuses were like flashing all different colors and then blanching white and showing they were just like (laughs) wigging out um, to use the scientific term. <laughs> and they eventually found that the proper dose was like much lower than the first one they had tried. And that it was actually pretty much the same as you would give a human pound for pound, uh, which huh. is intriguing. Wait, they originally tried to give an octopus more than a human would take? More than, um, we're talking about like relative weight. Right. So they gave them more per like ounce of their Apparently. body. Rude. But it was, <laughs> but it, it was also um, it, it's not like they were like force feeding the octopuses. This they were putting them in a water bath. Okay. With the ecstasy in it. Oh, I see. So I think they were um, like ambient ecstasy. Yeah, yes. So they, it was un, totally unclear how Can much you it would take. Imagine like putting an octopus in a, in a water bath with drugs, and then it just starts like disco balling out. <laughs> In all these different colors, I would be terrified. Oh, I would so, for the poor octopus. All of the octopuses involved in this study, by the way, are happy and, and healthy. None of them uh, suffered 
any Yay. ill effects long term. But they they did have some bad uh, trips uh, momentarily. So that they got the dosage right, and then they found that the the effects were strikingly similar as well. So I love the setup of this experiment. It's really adorable. They had this three chambered tank, um, and the middle tank was empty and. Then one chamber had an octopus in like a little enclosure so it, it couldn't move around. And then on the other side, there was a quote novel object, which was either a Chewbacca or Stormtrooper Star Wars figurine. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know how often they swap those out because frankly, I think that that is an important experiment condition mm-hmm. uh, and really depends on you know what side of, of the force the octopus being <laughs> so tested true. favors. So their data may need some work. I'm Secondary just analysis over here. Yeah. Um, so they dropped uh, sober test subjects into the middle tank for 30 minutes and measured where they chose to spend their time. So sober octopuses spent most of their time with the action figure. Uh, and when they did venture into the tank that had another octopus in it, they would uh, squish themselves into a corner and just maybe occasionally reach out a tentacle like Relatable. very nervously. <laughs> yeah, they were, they were not having a good time at that party. After they took MDMA, which uh, the researchers did by like dunking them in a beaker full of ecstasy water for 10 minutes, <laughs> followed by rinse to avoid contamination. <laughs> um, then they, when they put them back in the tank, um, they spent almost all their time in the social chamber. And they were, quote, all loosey-goosey with all five arms hugged around the enclosure that the other octopus was in. Aww. Um, she Also, the researchers said anecdotally they saw a lot of goofiness, like making tent shapes with their bodies and doing what looked like water acrobatics and spending a long time sitting stroking an air stone in the tank. (laughs) (laughs) So they were really... Uh, rolling, as one would say. The common thread seems to be this molecule serotonin uh, because MDMA works in part by latching onto the pumps in the brain that usually suck free-floating serotonin and it reverses them. So you get like a super heavy dose of this chemical that makes us really happy and social and friendly. Uh, And it seems that the same thing happens in octopuses, which is really intriguing because it suggests that this function of serotonin in the brain Um, has existed for a long, long time because this animal we haven't shared a common ancestor with for 500 million years plus uh, seems to have the same response to getting an uptick of of serotonin. Reading about this made me ask, (laughs) what other experiments have we done with animals on drugs? I told Uh you this is the most wholesome one because it just made a bunch of octopuses (laughs) hug each other. Oh no, I'm so Um, worried now. So I'm only going to talk about one really upsetting study uh, very briefly. Just lest we forget that there is a dark side to giving recreational drugs to animals. Um, I found one that we actually covered on Pop Today back in 2010. It's a study funded in part by Taser International um, where researchers got sheep high on meth Mm. and then tased them Mm. to see whether the drug raised risk of cardiac arrest. Um, The obvious drive there being that Taser wanted to prove that police officers who tased people high on meth wouldn't be uh, risking killing them. So wow. I hate that on all the wow. Institutional review board was like, onward. <laughs> I mean, I think they, they argue that it, it, it was like a humanitarian endeavor because Tasers are non-lethal. Um, anyway, it's Save the sheep. I dislike it strongly. Um, Uh, The one upside is that the sheep were at least anesthetized while receiving their post-meth shocks. Okay. One more. Okay. More wholesome. 
okay. drug study. Okay. Um, so doing this research reminded me of that meme of spider webs crafted <gasps> under the influence yes. of different drugs. So good. And thinking about it, I mean, I haven't seen them in a few years. And thinking about it, I was like, there's no way those pictures are real. Like, you've got the half-assed marijuana web and, like, a hilariously incomplete web on sleeping pills and a haphazard speed web. And I was like, it's too perfect. That can't be real. But it is totally real. Yay. Oh, my God. And I, <laughs> I uh, learned a lot about this, uh, this experiment uh, from a few sources, but kudos to Mike Pearl, who wrote a great article on Vice about it a few years back. Um, the researcher behind these experiments initially was not interested in, in particularly in studying he wasn't just like what happens when you give a spider meth his uh, colleague was trying to document um, the web making behaviors of spiders but hated that they all made their webs at two in the morning mm. and was like can you give them something that confuses them enough that they'll make webs at other times of the day <laughs> so he was just trying to see what how you might addle the mind of a spider enough that it would make webs all the dang time, I guess. Um, and that did not work. They kept making them at the same time. They just got funky. Um, so I have some pictures that, that we'll also Please. link to on PopSci um, because NASA actually ended up repeating these uh, studies later. So this is a normal web. And then this is a web on marijuana, mm. that, that <laughs> jazz wow. cabbage. Um, wow. So the marijuana one is way not as, like... It's not tight. Yeah. Not as regimented, mm. shall we? And then um, this is on Benny's, so, like, you know, speed. Um, <laughs> oh, God. And... Uh, That's what it looks like when I tried to crochet. Yeah. This is caffeine. Oh, yikes. Yeah, so caffeine, that's the one that, that people love to share because they're like, so rethink that cup of coffee while you're studying. It looks bad. But we'll get back to why it looks so bad in a second. This one is, oh, this is sleeping pills. Uh, I love this. They just didn't even try. <laughs> it's like super minimalist. It's like five lines. It's really beautiful. Um, and then LSD was really interesting because uh, low doses of LSD actually made them more meticulous. Like their the spacing between the web mm. was like more perfect. But then the more LSD you gave them, the weirder it got. And then eventually they just like didn't do it anymore. Um, uh. But it was like a very interesting transition from actually like higher performing, um, almost neurotically woven webs to uh, really like psychedelic three dimensional webs to nothing because they were too busy tripping. Um, and uh, what, what's interesting uh, is that this didn't really tell us so much about drugs. It told us more about like how spiders weave webs and how mm. innate it is because the interesting thing, given how different our brains are from spiders, it's not as if the spiders are actually experiencing the same thing we experience on these drugs. What's interesting is that spider to spider, the way the drugs change the web weaving is super consistent. So it indicates that, you know, there there is such like basic neuro behavior that is dictating how spiders weave their webs, that if you give them a substance, it will change how that web is woven in a really particular way. It's not like the spider's like, I have the munchies. <laughs> I'm not going to weave this dang web. It's not like that. Um, and the interesting thing about the caffeine is that probably the reason it, the caffeine one is is arguably the, the most messed up, which is so funny because we don't think of caffeine as a drug that messes us up. It's because... Uh, spiders are among a group of animals that are actually um, 
they will die if they consume like hmm. uh, pretty moderate levels of caffeine. Oh wow! So this is more about them being in like I think physical distress than um, than them being like addled on that that wacky caffeine. Um, so yeah, really interesting, and I'm super jazzed that these images are uh, real and what they uh, are labeled as because I I assumed it was too good to be true. Um, also really intriguing that the LSD web starts out as more meticulous on low doses because um, as some of you may know, microdosing on LSD is becoming like a very popular uh, like brain hacking mm-hmm. thing. You know, the idea that on really low doses it makes you more focused and that you do better on creative work. So again, spiders are too different from us to, for us to draw any uh, generalizations about what LSD might do to their web making, but it is it, it is an interesting parallel. And that's really all you can get from giving <laughs> drugs to animals is interesting parallels and electrocuted sheep. That's my fact. <laughs> I loved it. That's incredible. So what was the weirdest thing we learned this week? Ooh. Hmm. This is something to consider. It's a tough week. It is a tough week. I thought I knew how the ice trade worked, but I, I really learned a lot from that. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm going to give ice really? my vote. Yeah, I, I liked I liked learning about Frederick Tudor, <laughs> the ice king, because I think... Suck it, Sarah! <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I really like that, that we've got this comparison, even though like it's not direct, between the ice queen... In Frozen. Absolutely. And the Ice King. Well said. Who made all his money. (laughs) It's time to remix that soundtrack. (laughs) Wow, thank you guys. Um, Let's all have a cold beverage. Oh, yeah. The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, SoundCloud, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other weirdos find the show. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popside.threadless.com. The show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Faltman, and our editor, Jason Letterman. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.